0: Open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 13, Psalm 13 is where we're going to be today, Psalm 13, and uh, as you're getting there, I just, I, I uh, am reminded this season, you know, County Line Orchard is open, a little plug for the best donuts in the world, y'all like their donuts? First service went crazy for them, they were just like berserk, and you guys are all like, yeah, donuts, had them already, done, can wait till next year. Uh, So it's like fall is upon us. The rhythm of life is, for many of us, getting back settled in. Your kids are back to school. There's a routine to everything. It's sort of a fresh new season. And it's gotten me me realizing that um, there's two times in... I think, the rhythm of our calendar when uh, the, the sense of newness of everything brings out what is actually uh, the perspective of our hearts. And here, here's what I mean. Uh, how many people, when you were growing up and you went back to school in August or September, you were like me. You were, you were like waking up, the alarm clock went off that morning of the first day of school, and you were like, yes! Yes! a brand new year. Everything's awesome. This is going to be amazing. I mean, just, everything's going to be great. I'm going to get straight A's. It's going to be great. This is be a great, great year. I can't wait for the school year. People, people call that optimism. Um, how many people here optimistic people? Raise your hand. Just raise your hand. Optimistic people in the room, you might want to give a shout out. That's fine, but you're optimistic people. Some of you need to nudge your husband or your, or your wife and be like, Billy, that's you, man. Like, you're clearly optimistic. Um, The other day, I took a personality test. I love these things. It's not like one of those Facebook ones, like which friend's character were you. I took one of those like actual tests that are a strengths finders test. You've probably seen these before if you work in a corporate world or whatnot. And we use them in our church. And one of my strengths came back uh, as positivity. Positivity. And I thought, that's a dumb strength. Because when things are going great, you're positive. People are like, oh, yeah, well, things are going great. And when things are going wrong and you're positive, people are like, that guy, ugh. (laughs) So I lose-lose on the positivity, I guess. Optimism. It's, 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 I, I'm an optimistic person. I just love, love that tomorrow is a new start. Tomorrow is just a blank sheet of paper on which we can write whatever story we want. Tomorrow is a horizon waiting for us to discover it. Tomorrow is just going to be amazing. Don't you guys agree? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, so you're optimistic people. That's great. And, um, and actually, that's embarrassing. The word's escaping me for what the opposite of optimism is. It's um, it's what? Is it? Yeah, yeah, you know you're sitting next to a pessimist if they said realist. Because pessimists would never describe themselves as being a pessimist. Anybody here a realist? You're like, I live my life on planet Earth. I don't know about you all the pie in the sky people, but I know what's going on. It's crazy scary out there. Tomorrow's not bright and shiny. It's freaking me out. Tomorrow, who knows what tomorrow's going to bring. Tomorrow, my goodness, you don't know have to do tomorrow. Tomorrow, here's what I have to do. Right? That's the realist perspective. I grew up in a house full of realists. You can imagine my tension as a, as a growing kid. Realists don't, um, don't, don't care about tomorrow's optimism. Realists care about today's problems. And so today's message is actually for both of these groups. Uh, the first word in my title of the message today is simply this, optimistic. Optimistic. This is a characteristic of our life that has marked so many. You see the, br- the bright days ahead of us, but At the same time, for every pie-in-the-sky person that I know who's optimistic is is equally another one or two people who are realists, whose life is not all bright and shiny, whose life is not all about the forward-looking, whose life is just stuck right now in the here and the now and just trying to figure out what to do in the present trial and sorrow of life. That's the second word of my message today is sorrow, optimistic sorrow. That's the title of the message we have today. Say it with me optimistic sorrow. um, I realize I may have just completely offended everybody in the room by saying optimistic sorrow. Optimists are like, no, why do we have to be qualified by sorrow? Why does there have to be any sorrow in the world? And realists are like, what are you trying to do to me, man? You trying to make me happy? Why do I have to have optimism in the midst of my pain? Don't try and tell me what to do optimistic sorrow. It's, uh, it's become very apparent to me throughout the course of just being a pastor, particularly being a pastor here at the Hover Portage campus, that life is full of, of great highs. How many, for just a moment of audience participation, how many would raise their hand really high to say the past 365 days, there's been at least one moment of my life that was just amazing, a true high in my life? All the Cubs fans just put their hands in the air. Um, just like finally got to the pinnacle of what I, what I was hoping for. My wife and I, she was here the first service and we were we just we were thinking back like just a couple months ago. We had a baby. Like that's just an amazing thing for, for us to have and um, just a true high. And then how many people now, be honest enough to say in the past 365 days, uh, there's been something that's happened in your life or in the life of someone tangentially around you where you felt immense sorrow, where, where you've had a moment of immense, be, be courageous, put your hand up high. Which is just interesting. See, you and I may differ in the way that we view our default lens of the world, either being a, a, an optimist or, or a pessimist. But you and I have the same experiences that life brings with it not just the highs and not just the lows, but some of each. And each one of us are going to go through this roller coaster of emotions, of, of ups and downs, of, of sunshine tomorrow and darkness today. And I wonder in the past 365 days as you walked through some of those lower moments, some of those, those valleys, so to speak, what were the words that you used to talk to God? What did you say to God in your moments of despair? I, I have this problem. I, I'm sure you can forgive me for it is that whenever anything tragic happens in my life, my default, even as a pastor, my default is to um, do what most of us do, claim the successes and the victories of, of our lives as my own doing, and then the low points of my life as the punishment of God. And so many of us will walk through a valley and we'll, we'll, we'll want to have some high ecstasy in the moment, but we realize that life really hurts and we have no words from, for, for God. For so many people I watch walk through trial, the trial is the crucible in life that determines what your faith is made of. And So many people walk through a trial only to feel like God has forgotten them and they abandon God. What I want to call us to today, and Psalm 13 calls us to this, was we need words. We, as a people of God, need words to say in the middle of our grief and our anguish. And here we are in the middle of a brand new school year. You're back to work. You're looking at a new quarter coming up where you're gonna hit the ground running and do really good work at your job, and, and the kids are back, and there's a new season, and everything is before us is just new right now. And I guarantee you, over this next school year, you are going to have moments of pain and hardship. And some of you walked in the doors of our church today on your knees spiritually. And what do you say to God? What will you say? To God. What I want to call us to today is the ancient ritual, the art form, and the language of lament. Would you say that word with me? Lament. I don't know what you think of when you hear that word laments. For some of us, maybe we think of a a wall over on the other side of the world where people go cry at. It's an old word. It's a sorrowful word. It's a word we don't use very much of today, but it's a truly thoroughly Christian word and a very biblical word. It is God's pathway for us to navigate the emotions of our heart when times are tough. Lament, it is honest with us in our evaluation of what is happening and honest with God in our evaluation of what is happening and yet hopeful for the future. And Psalm 13 is going to show us in these moments, these low moments of our life, how do we talk to God? How do we talk to him about our pain and our struggle? So if you're with me, are you with me? All up for studying lament? We look at verse 1 of Psalm 13. Even before we get there, if you've got a Bible like mine, um, in capital letters right above verse 1, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. David was the king of Israel. Uh, he wrote lots of the psalms that comprise the book of Psalms. And notice that this is to the choir master. This is like David saying to the, the person who was in charge of all the worship services in Israel, Hey, hey, choir master, your king thinks that this is an important song for us to sing. This was designed, again, for us to, to sing together. And so you can kind of think of like, 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. And then this. Singing this, it says, how long, O Lord, will you forgive me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Charles Spurgeon uh, describes Psalm 13 saying, you know, for for years we've called this the how long psalm because of how many times David in the first two verses repeats the cry, how long. Spurgeon said we'd be doing better to call this the howling psalm because it sounds like David is, is howling from the depths of his soul. How long, oh Lord, how long, how long? And four times in the first two verses, David bemoans his situation to God. How long? And surely it's a howl from the depths of his soul. That place that can't even speak, he's in utter despair. We honestly don't know what was happening in David's situation that caused him to pen the words of this psalm. But whatever was happening, we can all agree, these are pretty bad days for David, right? I mean, these are, these are pretty dark days for the king. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And in doing so, in penning these words, David teaches us three lessons about lament, three perspectives about lament that we have to understand for ourselves so that as we navigate the trials of our own lives, we also can see them God's way. And the first thing is this, is that that lament, lament allows us to look around, to look around at the situations of our life, to see very clearly with, with clear eyes the actual situations in our life and to be honest, to be honest. I don't know about you, but how many, don't raise your hand, but I I know a lot of us have had a hard time with Christianity in the past because we've walked into church so many times and we've wanted to be honest with God that we're in pain, but we're greeted at the front door by someone who's smiling and they got a name tag and they're shaking your hand too hard. And then we send you past our ushers, and they're shaking your hand harder, and someone gives you a cup of coffee and like brings you to your seat, and we sing all these songs. And um, Nate Silver, that, that of blog, that blog guy, the, the analyst who does all the political stuff, he, he actually had his whole crew analyze the top 100 songs that we sing in churches. I don't know why he did this, but he did this. And you can go on his website, uh, 538, I believe it is, and, and just search in, The Sun's Always Shining in Christian Music. And he analyzed that of the the top 100 songs that we sing in in Bethel Church and around America, uh, almost all of them are overtly optimistic. And so you can walk into church on a weekly basis and we do a disservice so often, and I'm, I'm admitting this to you, we do a disservice so often to the reality of our lives. You want to be honest with God and yet here we go shoving smiles in your face. And how many of us would just rather look around at our life and be honest? Just, just look around at our life and say, God, I, I really, just truly, I feel like this right now. I don't feel like singing. I don't feel like dancing. I don't feel like smiling. I just feel like being here and having you hug me. This is what my soul needs, God, because this hurts. And yet, we see so clearly here, David says that in the midst of your sorrow. Look around and be honest. He says, how long? Notice how this works for David. He says, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long? It's a question of timing. And isn't it true that impatience is a core frustration of our hearts? If I was a, a preacher in the 1930s, I would have to agonize over illustrations to show you the impatience that you have in your heart, but all I have to do is text at a stoplight, and you honk at me, and I, I could just say the words, um, uh, flight's delayed, Wi-Fi's down, buffering, and all of a sudden, you're like, you got hives. You're like, why do I have to wait for this stuff? Uh, literally, uh, uh, it was um, uh, Friday. My wife and I ran out of data on our data plan. Awesome. We weren't around Wi-Fi, awesome. And I wanted to chuck my phone in the lake. It's like, why are you not loading? And all of us have at our heart this impatience in us. It reveals ourselves in the midst of David's impatient cry, how long? And it sounds so childish, doesn't it? So immature, so much like my four-year-old. Are we there yet? How much longer? I don't, how long is this going to take? And yet it's so much like us. In the middle of a trial, our hearts cry out like David's, how long, oh Lord, how long is this going to happen? And I don't, I don't know about you, but if you've been in a trial recently, one of the hardest parts of being in suffering is not knowing when relief is going to come, not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing what's around the corner, when the fog is going to lift. So many people feel stuck in the midst of depression because of this singular issue. They don't know when they're going to snap out of it. And with David, we all cry out, how long, God? I don't know if you're seasoned enough in life to have gone through a lot of trials and a lot of sorrow. But isn't it true that in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a sorrow, my, how slowly the clock will tick. And for some of you, you have um, have kids who just went off to college and, and it feels like just yesterday you were bringing them home from the hospital and in the joys of life, time flies, but in sorrowful time, it just ticks by so slow. David says what we all of our hearts say, God, how long? How long? And if you've ever been, Fortunate enough to get through a trial and to put it in the rearview mirror of your life, you can continue on in your life and look in the mirror and, and realize that what it was so difficult for you in the midst of the moment is now already five years past and how quick it's been. And yet in the middle of it, how long? David says, God, how long will this happen? First, he says, uh, how long, God, will you forgive me? Verse one, feels like I'm off your radar. Second thing he, he asks God, he says, well, how long are you going to hide your face and David's time for a king to hide their face from their subject meant to take their hand of blessing off of them. David's saying to God, God, you used to bless me, but now it feels like you don't bless me anymore. Uh, my family used to be blessed, but, but now all we do is fight. And my business used to be blessed, but now we can't even keep the doors open. And churches sometimes feel like this too. They, they, they say, God, we used to be effective, but now we can't even keep the lights on. God, where is your blessing? How long? Verse 2, we see David has been wrapped up in his internal thoughts. Negative self-talk is what the counselors today would call this. David, uh, uh, James Montgomery Boyce observes that sometimes what David is experiencing here is saying, how long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? He recalls that sometimes this is inclined by people's predispositions or temperaments but other times it's because of the situations of life that we're all all of a sudden within. Uh, Moms who have colicky babies know this. Normally sane individuals who are having to care for a kid who just at night will not shut up. And In the middle of a 2 a.m. feeding, you feel the depression sink in and the cloud come over you. And you ask God, how long will this take? Fourth and finally, David is saying, all of my enemies are winning the battles. I hope you don't have the same enemies that David had, people out to kill him. But we all for sure have enemies in our life, The great enemy of cancer and, and, and sickness and family dysfunction and communication breakdowns. It seems like we can't ever figure those things out. God, it just feels like right now, everything that's wrong is winning and everything that's right is losing. This is so small. This is so small, but lament just allows us to look around and be honest. And I would actually say it this way. It doesn't just allow us to look around and be honest. Lament requires us to look around and be honest. David says, God, it feels like this is never gonna end. My tears are constant. God, it feels like you're far away, unaware, even purposefully hiding from me. Isn't it encouraging that that's in the Bible? Like, isn't it encouraging for you to know that that this dude is wrestling with raw, authentic, fresh, honest thoughts? Because you and I do too. (laughs) You and I have the same struggles, the same honesty. David isn't minimizing his pain in an attempt to praise some pious prayer. He's engaging God as best and honestly as he knows how, even if, even if it makes him sound irreverent. And as a pastor, I've sometimes been called upon in life's hurt and pains to walk into situations where someone has just died, mom has passed, child has died unexpectedly. And for the, fast, the last few months as I've been growing in this area of lament, I've realized that one of the most pastoral things I can do in the moment of crisis, when a life was taken or a diagnosis was just received, is simply to be honest about it. More often than not, my prayer is very simple it's God, this hurts. And when your soul is frozen in the winter of sorrow, to pretend to God otherwise is not faith, but sham religion. I'm reminded of all the books that Jesus quoted. He quoted from the Psalms the most. And we talked about this last week, but it bears repeating. Before Jesus was betrayed, he himself lamented in the garden of Gethsemane to the point of blood coming out of his pores as he told God the Father emotions that God the Father already knew. And on the cross, what did Jesus quote? But my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is word for word a psalm of lament as he tells God the honest feelings that he has. So lament, it allows us to look around and be honest. But but there's another perspective for us as well. And I can hear someone in the audience saying, Dan, you said that this is optimistic sorrow, so where's the optimism? And for David, it actually starts in verse 3. Look back with me in Psalm 13. You still with me? Verse 3. It says, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God, Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. See, David turns from horizontally looking around at his own circumstances and situation, and he finally, he looks up to God. And lament allows us in our life and in our perspective to sort of get our mind and our perspective off of ourselves and to put it where it belongs, which is upward, to God. And when we look up in lament, we are unburdened. Notice the three things that David says here. Three requests that he gives. He says, consider me, God. Let my name cross your mind. He says, answer me, O Lord. So, to say, God, let me know that you're around. And then light up my eyes. Which is to say, bring vitality and life back to my life. It'll allow me to live with a spark in my eye. And here we see the three things that David's afraid of. He says, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest I die, got I feel like this is my end. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, and lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. One commentator I read from the days of Shakespeare uh, summarized this verse saying, lest my enemies make comedies out of my tragedy." Sometimes in the midst of our sorrow and pain, we're so afraid of how we will look in the midst of it that we hide behind our walls of insecurity and self-centeredness, and we never look up to have God unburden our souls. For David, his unshackling of sorrow is simply for God to see him and answer him and to show him something that might cause his faith to see God in the dark. The other night, Kristen and I, we've, we've got a, a four-year-old daughter, and um, I, apparently three, four years old is like when the dark becomes scary to a kid. Do you remember this? When you used to go to bed as a little kid, you had like your room, and like the aliens and monsters came out of somewhere in your room. For my room, I had a skylight over it and a shade that barely covered it, and for some reason, I thought like the seven dwarfs were just going to look down down my shade. I don't, I don't know why. That was just a true, true story. You guys can counsel me later. But we, we heard screaming from my daughter's room the other day, and so we we ran in there, and she's afraid of the dark. And so we've got, like, night lights everywhere. Like, it looks like a cult, like, secretly meets in the nighttime in her room, having their secret rituals with all the shades of light. And um, she goes, don't leave me, don't leave me. I want you to, I want to see Mommy. I'm like, Elin, we're both here. It's okay. She goes, I want to see Mommy. I want to see, it's too dark, it's too dark. I want to see Mommy smile. Oh, and as a dad, I'm like... Babes, I'll go turn the light on for you right now. And my wife's like, she's playing you. <laughs> Which she usually is. But in that moment of, of hearing the sincere cry from a four-year-old's heart, I want to see my mommy smile. I want to see. It's so clearly what David's crying out to God. Saying, saying God, sometimes I just want to see you. I just want to know you. are there. I just, just give me something to go by. I feel alone right now. I feel scared right now. I feel like... Like the situation I'm walking through has no end. And do you know about it, God? It's so powerful. What separates what separates lament from complaint is that lament is based in a solid faith, faith that God can see our situation. He knows about it. And he is powerful to do something about it. Amen. To, to remember that God knows and he sees and he will do something. I, I was reminded even as I was writing this message of a conversation I had with some of you all in, in my office not too long ago. I was counseling a couple that for, they're going through their own type of sorrow in their marriage. And some of it was self-inflicted because of things that they had done. And some of it was just because of the situations of life had just hit them in the right time in the right way. And I remember asking if the husband would pray about the relationship. Generally, that's kind of what I, I have guys do. Now I remember this one particular man lamenting over his sins so simply and honestly saying, God, I screwed this up. I'm not sure it can ever be fixed. I guess I need you to do it. And that's lament honest, unburdening when we bring our sorrows to the one who can do something about it. And I wonder here today, you walked in today, maybe you're not walking through any trial, but do you believe that when that trial hits, your God is sufficient to handle your complaint? Amen? And I wonder if you believe that he already knows the emotions and the true status of your soul, Friends, how great is it to know you don't have to have the right words to say in the midst of trials. You can simply, like David, just look up and tell God and let him handle your burdens. Say, God, this is what I think I need. This is what I'm afraid of. And I know I'm telling you because you're the only one who can do anything about it. This year, friends, as you go throughout this school year and this ministry season, I hope that our hearts can be marked as people who walk through the highs of life and give glory to God, but also through the lows of life and can be honest with God in the same process. And someone's still saying, Dan, this is still seeped in sorrow and I want to be optimistic. I want you to encourage me. I got to go out of, out of church today feeling great about God. And so uh, get to the optimistic part of the message, okay? And so we look at verse five. Read with me. It says, but... I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Let me just walk us back for a moment. Because doesn't this seem a little schizophrenic? Uh, 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 Verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I die. Lest my enemies take over me. Lest my foes throw a party because I'm gone. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. And I'm going to rejoice in your salvation. What has changed between verses 4 and 5? David is here in the situation where he feels he's at his lowest point. And He's penning the words of the psalm, and in my mind, I just see David in the corner of his palace, scribbling away, the tortured artist that he sometimes was, writing out his lament to the Lord. And verse one flows freely, and verse two flows freely, and verse three flows freely, and verse four flows freely, and verse five just can't come out of the pen, just can't get it on the paper. And he's rolling it up and throwing it in the trash can, rolling, trying again, throwing, it in the trash, trying again, and just not able to. And what changed in David to make him write? Verse 5, and I've been thinking about this a long time, almost a year I've been thinking about this one verse. You want to know the conclusion that I've come to that I'm really convinced of? I think absolutely nothing in David's situation got better. I think David wrote Psalms one through, Psalm 13 verses 1 through 4 and put the pen down. How long did he exist in this state? Days? weeks years and then and then david has something incredible happen because he writes this word my heart shall rejoice in your salvation and i will sing to the lord because he has dealt bountifully with me Something in David's mind clicks, his perspective changes, and that's what lament is. It is a, it is a walking through the perspectives we have on our own situation, and, and in verses 1 through 4, we see David is so self-obsessed with all that is going around him in his life, and, and he is both the object and the subject of his complaints. And then all of a sudden, verse 5 hits, and in looking up to the Lord, unburdening himself, his perspective also changes, and he realizes that he doesn't have to just look here and now in the moment, but he can also, in lament, look ahead and be encouraged. See, lament allows us to look ahead and be encouraged. In the midst of our sorrow, we have to look ahead and be encouraged. I want to show you how this all works. I want to show you uh, what David's doing. Up until now, David's been so self-absorbed. And then in verse 5, it's really marked a transition. He says the word, but. Everybody say say that with me. But. Uh, Preachers are famous for preaching whole sermons on this word, but. I'm just going to give you like, you know, 10 minutes on it. I'm going to milk this for all it's worth. Some of you are like, please don't, but I will. I'm going to earn my money today preaching this point. Amen? Amen? So um, I love like five people just got up and left. That's awesome. Let's put that the verse back up there. So this is, v- verse 5 says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. That, that word but right there is the, is the Hebrew word uh, vav. Some people say, say wah, and um, uh, it, it, it looks like this. It's a straight line, and it's got a, a little flag on the top, and it looks like the wind is blowing out of the east. This is the word Uh, uh, Vav. In Hebrew, it's the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and uh, normally it means and. It's like the ampersand. This this, this one character is itself a word, and depending on where you place this word in a sentence, it can sometimes be the word and, or oftentimes it can also mean the word but. $60,000 worth my education right there. Pretty good, huh? And, uh, Michael Card, in his book on lament, points this out. It's a fantastic book, by the way. I'd be happy to loan it to whoever needs it. And um, he he says that in lament, this word, this, this character, Vav, it shows up quite frequently, and it's a marker to explain the unexplainable shift in the mood of the psalmist, one from sorrow to joy. It's like an imaginary line that is drawn in the sand that has David's soul crossing from sorrow into deep trust in God. And the only way possible to explain the abrupt change in this psalm from verses four to five is to say that God himself has shown up. When David is able to look around and look up, he realizes, God, you're not far from me. You've never been far from me. But it's me. Who's been far from you? Where David is able to look up and around, it enables him to cross the line of self-centeredness into a world that is centered upon God as the object of our hope and our encouragement. So here it is in Psalm 13. I want to show you how self-absorbed we often are are in our own lament. Let's let's just walk through this really quickly. Look at what David says in the first four verses. Look at how self-centered David is. He says, how long, O Lord, Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. It sounds like my toddler. Me, 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 me. And how often do we obsess in our own lament about our current condition? God, why isn't this going better for me? God, don't I deserve better? Don't I, haven't I done enough? Where are you now, God? Why have you not shown yourself to me? And David's showing us the wrong attitude in which to walk through our sorrow. And so important that we get this next part right because he says, but, Vav. I get it, God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the focus off of me. I'm going to put it on you. And notice what happens. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully with me. The whole point of lament is for us to look ahead and be encouraged, not by what we are going to do, but by what God is doing around us and through us and in us. When God is the object of your life, when God is the object in the midst of your joys and your sorrows, you can live secure in his promises. When we are self-centered in the midst of our sorrow, it's always a bad plan. Why? Because we put our object and our hope and our faith in ourselves to make us feel better. We will inevitably fail ourselves. But when we make God the object of our sorrow, we have a faith that is being worked out. God is working in it and among us to chisel off the pieces of our heart that he wants us to have chiseled off. We can say to God, God, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I have trusted in you. I want to cross that line of faith, knowing my situation hasn't changed, nothing looks better, but knowing, God, that my perspective needs to lift up and let you do your thing. Look at what he says and what he puts his trust in, verse 5. I've trusted in your steadfast love. God's steadfast love, it's a Hebrew word, hesed. It's the word used to describe not emotional love, but the love that God had determined from the beginning of the world to love his people with. And his emotions and our emotions do not change that love. And because David is full of the faith of the covenant God, and God's love never changes, he knows that the future is always gonna be better than the present and so look what he says. He says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation, and I will sing to the Lord. For some of you, you walk into church on Sunday mornings, and, and it's, it's hard. Um, I, I've, I've often done funerals on Saturdays with some of you in, for some of your family members, and I come into the church on Sunday, and I look over from where I'm sitting, and I see you in church, and I can't handle it, I break down crying for you, but knowing that you're here in a place where you can't sing, but knowing that that's the cry of your heart is to sing, to lift up your soul to God, to say, God, God, I need you in my life in a powerful and real way. David, in the midst of his sorrow, looks ahead to better days. And says, I can't do it right now, but I know there's coming a day where I'm going to sing songs from the hilltop. We have that one song, the hills are alive with the song, sound of music. You know that song? That's where we expect to hear the songs of the saints, is from the hilltops. And David shows us that we hear songs, not just in the hilltops, but in the valleys, in, in the pit, songs in the night. It comes from faith in the Lord. And so it is with lament. There's optimistic sorrow saying, God, I don't like the situation, but I know you will love me nonetheless, and I know you've given me the best days ahead, and I'm reminded in my lament that you are steadfast, which means while it's been a long time to me, I know you love me and I know you see me. While my enemies might seem to be winning all the battles, God, I know you ultimately win the war. Well, I'm sad now. I want to desperately sing of your goodness. So, lament—it always leads us to worship. In lament, our sorrows end in singing. Problems turn to praise. We can have optimistic sorrow. It was February of 2016. I was standing right there, and um, I, I had my phone on the floor. And uh, I don't like to text during the service, actually. Um, never do but for some reason this day my phone was on the floor and I saw it light up and there was a text message from my mom and we were like one song before I was supposed to get up and preach and I I saw it said hey grandma had a stroke and it's really dot 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 so I opened it grace for the pastor in church opening a text message in church okay inside I saw what the rest of it it said and it's really bad she can't move her left side of her body She can't talk. She's stable. But nothing's going to be the same ever again. I'll keep you updated. By God's grace, my grandma's alive. She's doing well. But this was a stroke that took her out. My grandma lives now in a um, a, a, a assisted living, thank you, assisted living facility, really nice one, but... um, all she wants to do is cook in her home. She just wants to go back to her kitchen and make a pot of coffee. She just wants to sleep in her own bed and to hear the sound of the cardinals in the backyard. She wants to be able to talk to her grandkids and her great-grandkids. We got her an iPad, but she's paralyzed, and she can only use it one-handed. I go and I see her sometimes, and um, I go with my grandfather, uh, and uh, they're both alive. They're, they're doing well, but things have changed for my grandma. She can't speak. She is sharp as a tack, but she's stuck in this body where she can't communicate. And so when I'm there with her, I know what she's trying to say because I can see it in her eyes. You know how that works sometimes? You just know what someone's thinking because of their eyes. And it's always this, this guy's crazy. That's what my grandma's telling me about my grandpa. He's crazy. And um, right when the whole thing happened, we immediately put a plan in place for my grandfather, because my grandma and grandpa are from that generation where, um, you know, men would go off to work and take care of the business, and and women would take care of the home, and my grandpa took that to a new level, just truth be told. Uh, He would wake up early and go downstairs in his library and write books his whole life, and then he'd go pastor and go to places and preach and whatnot, and for the 60 years they've been married, my grandma has written all the checks and put gas in the car and mowed the lawn and fixed the things. My grandma's got, and she knows her way around a toolbox. Um, and all of a sudden, my grandpa's living in this house by himself. And so my, my mom flew out to teach my grandpa at 87 years old how to put gas in the car. This is how crazy it is, guys. It's, it's insane. And so we don't get the cards from them on birthdays anymore. We don't get the phone calls and anniversaries anymore. But this Christmas, something came in the mail from my grandpa. And uh, I saw the address, I realized who it was from, and I was like, huh, how'd that happen? So I open it up, and sure enough, there's a Christmas letter. And in it, the first line says, this is the man of the house writing, so I'm sorry for any improprieties. Wow, Gramps did the the Christmas letter this year. Good for him. I mean, he's written enough. He can probably write a letter. So I read through it. And in it, my grandpa said, this has not been the year that we expected in our household. And back in February, Betty had a stroke, and she hasn't been able to come home since then. And then throughout this letter to my family, my grandpa just outlined all the ways that life has been hard for him, all the trials and pain and anguish that he's going through, getting lost on his way home from the one street he has to turn on. It's just life is different and he tried his best to write my, my grandma's perspective in there to say she's doing well, but she's frustrated. And she knows, though, that this is the only way it's going to work. And at the end of the letter, after all of this complaining, my grandpa wrote this one line. He said, in the midst of it all, we're thankful for Jesus Christ, who promises us that the best is yet to come. With love, grandpa. Grandpa. I I open my mail over my garbage can, that's just what I do, and I remember crying over this lament letter from my grandpa to to realize that this is how it looks. In in the middle of life's hurts and pains, God has given us a language, God has given us a rhythm of lament for us to express back to him our true feelings and emotions. To to say to God, God, this hurts, but we trust in you. To say, say, God, this isn't what we want, but we know you can handle it. And say, God, we're so grateful that even though our situation is dire now, we believe, hell or high water, the best is yet to come. We celebrate the best future ahead. And this is what it looks like for us to be a church of lament, that we could be honest, that we could be unburdened, and that we could be encouraged. Let's pray. Father, you know where each of us are in our current struggles of life right now. You know the various highs and lows and sometimes that weird mixture of both that we experience. God, you know that we struggle to put to words how we feel. So God, I'm grateful that you and your providence saw it fit for David to pen these psalms of lament. That Jesus, you took this up as a banner over your life as well. That a lament is not a lack of faith, but is the ultimate expression of faith. To say, this is hard, but God, you are good. God, may that be true of us. May that be true of us as a church as we walk through whatever you have for us in the future. Whatever trial, persecution, famine, or flood. You are always the God who is in control. And help us, Lord, have the language to wrestle with you in the midst of that season. It's in your name we pray.